I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Rest day special. I guess I'm kind of making up for that one stage I missed two days ago because I missed the coverage. You're welcome. Pack Filler Podcast. I'm Pat Bulger in the studios. Hey, um, I gotta gotta thank to the sponsors. Gotta thank Noon. Um, I haven't tried another cocktail yet. I'm gonna have to try another one, and I'll let you guys know what it is. And also thanks to Honey Stinger. I have tried the organic chews. I just bought some uh, just yesterday, and I used them on a ride in the extreme heat because I was losing everything, and uh, it was great. Um, I, I like the chews because it's not like a big hearty bar, especially when it's hot. That's all I ate when I did uh, Leadville last year, just because the, when it's hot and you're sweaty and it's gross, the last thing I want is like a sandwich or something like that. But thanks to all those guys for being involved in the in the podcast, and uh, thank you guys for all the comments that have been continuing to come down the pike, and uh, keep them coming. And I know some of you are watching that HBO special that I'm not going to give a name to uh, because it fucking sucks um and i love that you're all starting to share your opinions on a specific person that was in that specific show yeah uh today on the rest day um i'm just happy that so far it's later in the afternoon and we haven't had any big revelations come out of of you know hotel room raids or anything like that so so far so good and nobody's broken a bone yet today although rafael micah i understand has dropped out of the race probably from injuries received from his uh crash on the big day yesterday yeah in studio today you guys i had the opportunity to talk to a legend and if you have not been involved in cycling long enough to understand the name when I say George Mount, you need to look him up and you need to understand what he did for the sport of cycling in the United States of America in terms of um, making an attempt to go dance with the big boys. He is a legend. He's been in the um, he is in the U.S. Bicycling Hall of Fame, and he's a he's a really nice and outspoken guy. I had a good chat with him, ladies and gentlemen. I give you. George Mount on the Pack Filler Podcast. All right, you guys, today's guest is uh, truly a pioneer of American cycling, winner of over 200 races in the U.S., Europe, and South America. He was sixth in the 1976 Olympic road race in Montreal and one of the first Americans to race professionally in Europe. This man's accomplished what was considered impossible at the time, paving the way for American cycling. Please welcome to the show with me, U.S. Bicycling Hall of Fame inductee George Mount. How are you, man? 
Hey, I'm doing good. Hey, but it's, I, I just said kind of off the air before we started that I wanted to kind of make sure we give the audience some perspective about who you are and what you've done. And um, I want to kind of start there if that's all right. Um, according to my research, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, call me out on anything. You started racing in 1973 as a junior, correct? Correct. And what got you into cycling? Um, I like to ride my bike a lot, and I, I had some friends in high school that had bought fancy new bikes, and uh, I didn't have a fancy bike, but I liked riding a lot, and you know, it was a good escapism, and, and there was a couple of high school racing series popping up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I tried a couple of them, and um, I just remember one of my favorite moments was coming away with my buddy in high school, and we did a time trial, and he goes, oh my God, that hurts so much. It was awful. I never want to do that. And I, my response was, no, it hurts so much. I want to do it again. <laughs> so different personalities. Yeah. What, what was American cycling like at the time? I started in the in the 80s, little early 80s and stuff like that. And I, I just remember it was, wasn't very, you know, popular, I guess we could say, until the kind of the growth of sport that you you guys brought about. But what was it like for you at the start then? Well, from between World War II and and when I and a few other writers came about, it was it was pretty much not happening. Uh, there were a, a lot of people from the United States that would go to Europe and try their hand at a few races at the amateur level and have their butts kicked more or less, and uh, come back with stories that included some reality and some not so reality uh, pieces. And and you know, and then we would glom onto all that and we would read. You know, a, a copy of Miroir Cyclismo would wake, work its way around the San Francisco Bay Area for a couple of weeks, and we'd, you know, gawk at these pictures and try to get somebody to translate a little French for us. Um, and, you know, it was small enough that if you ran into somebody with tubular tires on a ride, you either knew who they were or you stopped and got to meet them. <laughs> um, there just wasn't – it wasn't popular, and the racing – the American racing was plagued by this – uh, notion that Americans could never compete with Europeans. And a couple of guys started to have a few breakthroughs. Dave Chawner had won a stage in the yes. milk race about when I started. Um, but for the most part, you were completely discouraged from going over there and racing with those those guys over there. It was impossible, even at the amateur level. It was considered impossible. And I grew up reading things, you know, at the beginning of Merckx's career and, and, and guys like that. And, and you know, you know, probably like, you know, a teen girl with her fashion mag or whatever, her teeny bop magazines back in those days. You know, we had our miroirs and, you know, we there were a few of us who dreamed of actually going over there and competing. But most people just considered it to be impossible. And like I said, so many people had gone over and done so poorly. And, and you know, you you know, some guys would claim they want to race, but turn out with some local club ride or something like that. So to actually go over there and, and compete was considered I mean, it just wasn't considered. I, you know, to this day, the the stuff that I did over in Europe was just simply not followed in the United States because I think primarily because no one could comprehend that it was possible to go over there and and do well internationally. Um, and of course, I wasn't the first, and I wasn't the only one, but but I was one of the first, and you know, did a, a fairly good trajectory of a career, and and you know, quit racing after three years on a top pro team yeah. just because. It's very hard, and I really didn't want to get into what they call the next level, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which included some pharmaceuticals I wasn't willing to play around with. Wow. Um, but you know, I was I was happy with what I'd done, and and decided that that's fine. I'm almost thirty; it's time to go back and try to get a real job. <laughs> well, it, you you spoke of trajectory, and that was a pretty quick trajectory to be starting racing in '73, and then on the 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 starting line of the Olympics. In, in just three years, um, that's that's kind of in in my perspective at least that's a little unheard of. What do you credit such a, a quick rise? Were you always athletic, or did this just kind of come to you naturally? Or no, I was I was not athletic. <laughs> um, as Michael Shermer says, what, said when they asked him if he could could have gone faster in the race across America, what could he have done? He said, I could have had better parents. I mean, I, I had you know. There's there are two major aspects to doing well in cycling, and one is physiological, and the other is mental. And I've certainly met many riders in my career, especially ones put forth by the U.S. Cycling Federation at the time, yeah. um, who had a much better physiology, but without the mental component, you're never going to be successful as a racer. Um, so those two things came together well enough for me to do well. And the other thing is that 
I mean, the, the, the state of the art, shall we say, in racing at that time, when I started racing in the early 70s, wasn't very high in terms of the, the quality of the riders. And, um, and all of them, when they did go to Europe, went over there with the attitude that, you know, we're just going to get our asses kicked, so let's just get this over with. Really? Yeah. And yeah, and and that was kind of kind of sad. I mean, you know, uh, the the we went to the milk race in '77, I think it was, and and Phil Liggett was the promoter at the time, and he came up to us and he says, he says, if any of you guys cry on camera because it's cold, like one of your American compatriots did a couple of years ago when the the team had been there before, because it's cold and it's raining, you know, we're going to throw you out of the race and you'll never come back to <laughs> race the Tour England again. <laughs> <laughs> and we just kind of looked at him like, well, that ain't going to happen here because we're from California and we're going to we're going to do all right. So, well, and the Olympics themselves, um, I've, I was in, in preparing for this interview. I watched back the TV coverage of the Olympics of that day. And it was I, I almost thought of it as how insulting to George. In fact, that the TV commentator himself says, you know, U.S. writer George Mount. He isn't expected to do very well. Um, Come on, it was it was Jim McKay on Wide World of Sports. What it. does he know about cycling, right? <laughs> it was it was it was a really interesting piece for the times. Yeah, well, it, yeah. I'm obviously it, it came as a surprise to a lot of people. Was it something you were expecting? Were you thinking I'm going to seriously kick some ass in this day, and I'm feeling like I'm ready to do it? Well, I, I, I'm on record as saying a week before that that because in, and and realized that we'd race in Mexico against world champions, Polish riders and Russian yeah. riders. So we knew who they were. They weren't unknown entities. And before the Olympics was a multi-day stage race, which I got in the top ten in and and so on, and racing against all the teams except the Swedish team. And I went on record a week or so or two weeks before the Olympics, saying if I can, if I don't have any bad luck, I can finish in the top twenty. Wow. I mean, I thought I was good enough to finish in the top twenty. I, I thought. Based on my experience of racing for five days, including the Montreal circuit going the other direction. Yeah. So I had an idea of what I was up against and what my capabilities were, even though I hadn't raced in Europe. I now had, you know, a number of days under my belt racing with those guys. And and I used to say, if I can race with them, I can race with them. Yeah. You know, if you just when you first go over there, you get your butt kicked, but you've got to, you know, rally and figure out what's going on and, and figure out who your competition is. And and you know, within a couple of weeks of racing with the the top level guys and there, you you should if you have talent, you should be able to continue racing with them. You know, a lot of the pro- problems with American racers then and now we seem to be going backwards in some ways is, is they go over, they race a couple of big races, get their asses kicked, and then they crawl back to their, their training camps in yeah. you know, Tenerife or, or, or Boulder, Colorado for a couple of weeks of training and, and think, oh, okay. But you know, you've got to sit there and you've got to get your head bashed a million times before you do well in a few races. What was with cycling as it was um, in, you know, in terms of popularity, what was the reaction to that finish in, in Montreal? I don't know. I, uh, I, don't, I don't, I don't, well, I mean, there was some reaction. I remember yeah. when we got off the plane in Boulder, Colorado to, to go ride there and, uh, the camera crew came to, to actually interview me from the local station and John Howard thought they were all coming for him and they walked right by him and he should have seen, he was so disappointed because he was so used to being the big champion. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he never realized that it, that was literally the week that cycling just went by him and his, you know, that whole 1970s contingent was just you know in the early 70s late 60s it was like no we've just the whole sport just took this giant step beyond you and this is this is notice you know this is notice that you guys need to just kind of and a lot of guys that were racing um you know for many years before that kind of went and said "Eh, well i think it's time to find another career wow really (laughs) yeah well and so yeah there was there was some recognition but i don't i still you know i don't think i mean I, I think in terms of for the 30 years before and for about 10 years after, there was, you know, it got good co- – it was good coverage for the yeah, sport. Of course. And and so 1980 is is a race that you were you were, had prepared for. You were, you know, Pan Am Games. You, you won that. Everything was flying. And then all of a sudden, uh, the boycott happens. Um, what are your thoughts on in terms of, of 1980? You obviously said, screw it, and went pro immediately after that. Why continue on? Um, but being as somebody going into that event who could possibly have taken home the, the, you know, the gold medal in that, but being denied by politics, what was, what was your thoughts on that? Well, the Olympics weren't what they are now in cycling In cycling. The Olympics were stepping stone stone to a professional career. And I still think I would have had a better, longer career if I turned pro within a year or two after the 76 Olympics, but that didn't work out. I wasn't in Europe. I didn't have the connections 
you know, if I'd had the money, I probably should have just gone over there and, you know, gone from cafe to cafe in Ghent and found a pro contract. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was what it was. You know, no, I was, you know, I was geared, geared up for the 80 games and I was considered one of the favorites in the world. And, um, you know, and Mirar had me and a Russian guy and a Polish guy and other people on the cover, you know, yeah. saying these, these are the guys to watch. And, and, you know, I even had a, you know, copy of the course information long before USA Cycling did because um, they were so behind the top, the you know curve on everything. Yeah. Um, but really, it, you know, as far as I was concerned, you know, I've been in the Olympics. I want to turn pro. I mean, the, my from my teenage years, you know, all I ever wanted to do was you know race with the big guns, race with the guys that I read about in magazines, and yeah. just to be in a race with them. It's you know, and to race with them. I mean, actually be in there, you know on a team working and doing the whole thing. And so it worked out fine for me. I just made a phone call and, and I had enough reputation that I got a contract for the next year. So what was that transition like? Um, I had to transition actually in the, in the first third, after about a third of the year, because, uh, they went away till after the Jira was over. So I turned pro in the middle of the season, which was hard, oh, but, God. and they also made me jump through a lot of hoops. Um, they actually made me, when they agreed to it, they said, yeah, but you got to win at least three category one, you know, dilettante races and do, you know, get all these points and stuff just like everybody else because I hadn't raced in Italy the year before I'd been in France. And, uh, so I went over and, and what hooked up back with the, the guys who had taken care of me in 77 and, uh, you know, they had a little team with two other riders on it and I won enough points and everything. So that at least they didn't cry about it. So, um, I had to race really hard leading into it. Um, so the transition was, was fairly easy. It wasn't a big problem. Uh, for me, and I, you know, I did fairly well in some races, and and started learning the ropes, and learning exactly what my position in the team was going to be. Um, so it was, you know, it was a good experience. Was it um, accepting from the the other from the team's perspective? I mean, riding with the other riders, I've seen, you know, quotes that you've said about um, Argentine and Vicentini and and rides, riders like that who you were on teams with. Um, what was it like being an American coming into that environment? Um, well, you got to remember, first of all, that there were only about five or six foreigners racing on Italian teams at the time. Okay. Right. I mean, yeah. it was a completely, you know, different era to get on an Italian team was very difficult. And one of the reasons you had to ride really clean was because, you know, you, they just as soon have you tested positive for no reason so that some Italian guy can get put on the team. So you had to be oh, really wow. extra double, triple careful. And um, some of the guys were really friendly, and some of the guys were not that friendly. Um, typically, what I found was the better the rider was, the nicer they were. Um, <laughs> but I, I think at the, at the top level, you know, everybody knows you, you might be racing with this guy, this team this year, or another team next year. You know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly collegial um, group of yeah. people um, as far as, you know, personality-wise. You know, there were, there's the gruff guy, there's the guy who acts kind of mean there, you know, there's the whole, you know, it's like being in an army platoon or something. you got every possible character that you can think of. Um, but you know, I was, you know, it, it was never, I was never fully accepted because I was a foreigner. Also, I, I read books that didn't have pictures in them, which was considered <laughs> strange by most of the writers they, who read comic books. And I just pick up, you know, sci-fi stuff at the airports and things. But they, they, you know, they start giving you the, oh, you're the professor and all this crap. And it's like, no, <laughs> just so because it's you know very blue collar sport. Yeah, but, but a lot of really there was a lot of really nice guys there. You know, were there any particular races that really stood out for you over those three years? Not really. Not really. Uh, you know, um, I was racing at that time. My second year, I counted how many races, how many days I'd raced when the Giro finished, and I'd raced 45 of 51 days. Okay, wow. And Jesus. and we raced an average of about 150 days of racing back then, and I think I the hundred average race was come over 160 miles. So the, um, you know, the season was long, and and by the time you're halfway through it, you, oh, you know. <laughs> The recollections are scarce. Yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> that's brutal. How about how about riders? Were there any riders in particular you respected at the time, or not even? I wouldn't say looked up to, but you know, at least established some sort of a relationship with. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I got like I said, I got along with people. I mean, yeah. it, I, I was I got to race. So what was great for me is I got to race in an era when it was the end of the sort of the end of the Mercs guys. Yeah. 
right? I mean, Merckx was gone, but some of the guys in the team said, yeah, you're lucky. You didn't, you didn't want to race when Merckx was around because <laughs> everybody just raced for second place. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I got to race with, you know, Lucien Von Imp and Freddie Mertens was on my team the first year. And, you wow. know, these are guys who, you know, I literally five, six, seven years before had only, you know, couldn't even pronounce their names and yeah. you know, reading about them in, in publications that didn't publish in English and the American stuff didn't cover hardly anything in Europe. And, and if they did, it was, it was incorrect and wrong, but you know, to be on a team with these guys and, you know, and, and like Merton's was like the nicest guy you ever met in your life. Wow. He was just a really nice, really friendly guy. And, um, so, you know, and, and I got to, you know, sprint against Lucy and Van Imp for mountain prime points in the Giro d'Italia. I didn't, I don't even remember yeah. how I placed compared to him. I'm sure he beat me. I'm I, so I think I remember I, I was almost busting up laughing, laughing going up this one climb. Cause I was, <laughs> this is like, this is the dream come true. <laughs> right. I mean, we were, we went from nowhere to this in just a couple of years yeah. Yeah. and, you know, and, you know, Mike Neal had turned pro a couple of years before and when he, the guy, what they did is there's a guy Cleveland from Australia who had turned pro and, and he was lonely. So they brought Mike in. So he had somebody in a room with who spoke English and then Cleveland had a, some kind of a nervous breakdown or something and left. And, and Mike kind of, you know, he started in the Vuelta and didn't finish it. And I think he was, he was lamenting about having to, Maniflex was the mattress company that sponsored his team and they put him to work in the factory building mattresses, which means they're kind of telling you, yeah, we don't really want you on the team anymore. Oh God! Oh God! <laughs> so, so cycling has has definitely gone through some some major changes since that time, both positive and negative. Um, and I, you know, I know this is kind of an overarching question, but um, what do you consider to be some of those positives and some of those negatives that have that have come about since your career? Uh, and I don't mean I to think, make it too big. Uh, I think the money is a both a positive and a negative. The riders making a lot more money. Yeah, but a lot of them have to spend it on programs, as they call it, um, <laughs> with with medical doctors and yeah. people like that. The teams are more complicated, which is, you know, I mean, we we went to the Giro with ten riders, three three swaniers, two mechanics, and a manager, and yeah. and they drove the cars, they did everything, they cleaned the bikes, you know, a whole Giro, and uh, and not three rest days either. <laughs> that's the old that's the old cranky guy going, ah, oh, you know, back in the day, <laughs> I had but, it uh, different. <laughs> we only had one or two rest days. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, like I said, it's, there's pluses and minuses. I, you know, I'm, I look at it more from the perspective of how is American cycling doing yeah. and, and, you know, cause that's what I'm most proud of. And, you know, as, as always, American women's cycling is doing really well and they get no, no coverage or credit for that at all, which is, which is no different and sad. Yeah. But the great thing is our riders doing better. Um, our riders, you know, it seems like they kind of peaked. We've only got three guys in the tour this year, and we yet we have two major American sponsors. I mean, Specialized, I think, has five pro teams they're yeah. furnishing bikes for. Yeah. But they can't – I mean, it typically in cycling, and the American sponsors haven't figured this out. If I'm an American sponsor, I want some American riders on the team. And you can, you can influence that kind of stuff. And – Yet I don't see any of that happening, and um, and then I also don't see any improvement. I mean, when I when I was I mean, when I raced in the Olympics in 1976, I rode on my own damn tires and wheels. Yeah. They gave me a jersey. I had to wear my own shorts. And then the president of the federation tried to steal the jersey off my back five minutes before I'm even back to the hotel. He tried to take the jersey off so he could sell it or trade it or something. No shit, really. And oh yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, I didn't. I never received so much as a ball bearing from from the United States Cycling, from whatever ABLA back then yeah. and the USCF. Yeah. And yet, yet we knew in conversations with the Campagnolo guys that they'd been sending gobs of equipment back to the you know USA Cycling. They were a sponsor because they were pissed because there were team members riding Shimano equipment. And go out. Well, you know, I don't know where you're sending it, but I never see any of it. Was it just being uh, taken and sold? I don't know where it went. <laughs> I can only speculate. No, uh, yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, I know I'm not going to put you on record yeah. or something like that, but I'm just sitting, my, I'm, I've got my head and uh, my hand on my forehead going, what the, what? That's, everybody <laughs> knows where it went and who sold it, but nobody else could say anything because you can't prove anything. Oh, Jesus. Listen, when, when, I, when, I, when I run top amateur races in Italy, they have a, a rules there where 
their federation sends your federation a certain amount if you, for getting in the top first or second or third or some number. And it's a significant amount of money. It's like a thousand bucks per race. You win five, 10, 15 races. It's a significant amount of money. That money was sent from the Italian cycling federation, the U S cycling federation. I never saw a penny. Oh, Jesus. it's supposed to go to support the riders. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and what I'm seeing now is I'm not seeing, I mean, maybe it's not quite that blatant, but you know, I, I don't think it's gotten a lot better. <laughs> so, okay. So there, there's, there, I asked about changes that have happened and there are some things that, you know, speculation maybe, um, in terms of what we can prove or not prove. Then there right. are some things that have not changed. And, um, and I guess when it comes down to this concept of the business being a business and you can only trust so many people involved, um, that just, that, that, hurts to hear <laughs> well there's there's a complete lack of transparency at, at 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 the same level as there was back then and when there's a lack of transparency it to, to someone who's seen the abuses over the decades it it begs one to ask the question and wonder but you'll never get an answer so why bother yeah oh god oh god so so but you know the in terms of cycling as being accepted as a sport you know i mean kids it's it's considered acceptable and as long as you don't get run over by a, an irate uh driver uh, it's great yeah. to ride a bike and you know um and i'm it's what's really great is to see american bike manufacturers you know and and component manufacturers sponsoring pro teams over there yeah i, I think that's i think that's just great and and you know so i just wish that they would do a little bit more to help the riders uh, here but i'm sure they do everything they can through the federation and then the federation uh or whatever they call them these days yeah. is uh helping as best they can <laughs> helping <laughs> themselves or something yeah well yeah hey you know we've got a blue payment on a condo what what do you equate to the fact that we are only seeing three american riders in the tour now is it, it is, why you know here we had four or five years ago we had a, a great amount it, it had been consistently yeah. growing and now we see such a drought yeah i, I i'm as as with everything, the answer is never one or the above. There's, there's usually a number of contributing factors, and I, I don't know what they all are, um, you know. But I have seen. I mean, you know, we've seen, you know, the great, the next great American hero a number of times come along yeah. in the last five or ten years, and then they kind of fizzle out. And, you know, it's, it's. I don't know. I don't know what the root cause of that is. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think there's some, some root causes of the. There's some root stuff that could be fixed in cycling in the U.S. to improve things overall. But in terms of getting riders to go over there and succeed and do well and, and actually be contenders in the big tours, I mean, you know, we've proven that we have the talent. I, and I used to, when I was over there, I used to say, wait till the Americans, you know, I'm the first, but wait till they all come along. Our gene pool is way better than your gene pool. <laughs> and if the money comes into the sport, you know, we're, we're, we got some talent, but. You know, I'd like to see the U.S. manufacturers work with the, the, you know, the teams and the riders and stuff to get them in those races. Because again, if they can race, they can race. I think part of it is they're a bit. The U.S. riders seem to be a bit mollycoddled. I mean, they seem to yeah. fly back and forth a lot. They go to these big training camps and places, and they they're only racing 40, 50 days of racing a year, maybe even less in Europe. And you know maybe they just need to harden the fuck up, as they say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay. No, I, I and I agree. Or I've always wondered if it was something along the developmental stage. But then, as you say, we do get riders of promise coming up. Um, but yeah. then something seems to happen where where the riders just don't seem to make it to that next final step. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can attribute some of it to um, overparenting. <laughs> There's. I'm not going to mention any names, but there there are there are some rumors or some instances of you know yeah. uh, riders who show up at big races with their you know the parent, and that's really? kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, there's um, <laughs> yeah, and that maybe from the teams too, and so on. Uh, you know, I think they're going to. I mean, you take the guys out of Belgium; they're still growing up in the you know the fire and the ice and the cobbles. Yeah. And our guys go over there and they race a couple of races, and then they go back to Boulder or Bend or wherever they're at, and they recover and. And then they go back again and, and, you know, they just, you know, occasionally they show, they show they have the talent, yeah. but I think that, um, you, they got to harden up. <laughs> okay. Um, here we are one week into the tour. This is, uh, we're recording this on the, on the rest day itself. You know, one of the three, as, as we said earlier, um, I would like to categorize this tour consisting of a lot of drama, but little action. 
Um, if you, it's if, so boring. It it's really, just so boring. Yeah. I mean, you got a couple of hills now, and then you're going to have some more flat stages, and then finally a few hills, and then some more flat stages. Yeah, it's been a lot of drama and a lot of broken bones. Well, okay, so let's let's kind of go through some of the things that have been happening. Have you been? And I'm I'm hoping you've been watching on a regular basis. Um, I do recall something on Facebook you said about the Peter Sagan issue. Well, that was that was ridiculous. But again, multiple factors, yeah. you know, moving, getting rid of him puts the French guy into the green jersey, if it, uh, even if it was only for a, a couple of days yeah. or a day or whatever. OK, that's a classic French move. Thank you for you know, thank you for um, supporting my initial crazy man theory in one of my earlier shows. I said, I, this is a conspiracy. There's there, I haven't read your I haven't listened to your shows. No, but don't worry about it. Nothing crazy about that. Um, Cavendish is known to do this. He's done it many, many times. Tries to make a hole where there isn't one. Sagan, as a world champion, has an obligation, and as a sprinter, right? So he's in with his equal sprinters. He actually has the obligation as a world champion to find to to you know tell these guys to stop doing this stuff. I mean, that's sort of an obligation that you take on. Wow. And I think he was kind of laying the law down with Cavendish. But as it turns out, he, he didn't even touch Cavendish. It no. looks like Cavendish did what he's done many times, and you know, tried to do something that he couldn't do, and and that's a risk sprinters take. That's why he wins so many races, is because the sprinters are. Fucking crazy. Yeah. Pardon my French, but no, uh, you know, fine. it's I'm not a sprinter. I was <laughs> and uh, they thought I was crazy, and I think they're crazy. But I mean, he's done this before, yeah. and he's done it, and he'll keep doing it. And there's no way that saw what Sagan did was was wrong. And and not that I mean, all sprinters shit happens in those races. Yeah. But there's certainly no justification to pull Sagan out of the race, or even penalize him anything. In fact, if anything, he should be praised for trying to. to to set Cavendish straight for a change. Well, and staying upright. I mean, because those, I every time I look back at that footage, it looks like those big, huge, goofy-looking Campagnolo uh, brake hoods caught him in the forearm, and he was moving his elbow up to, to, you know, become unhooked from Cav's brake hood. Yeah, I mean, it, that's it, what all I think. that's irrelevant. I mean, Cav yeah. didn't didn't have room to go. He he went hoping that you know he that somebody would move out of his way slightly, and it was too late. And yeah. you know th- that was ridiculous. I mean, and and of course, I mean, my wife and all the other women I know that are following cycling have now just dropped watching the Tour de France because they're just watching it for their boy Sagan. Yeah, they're all in love with him. He's and he's the best world champion we've had in a long time. He represents the sport really well. Yeah. I like to say that he gets the joke and he's willing to keep, you know, and, and he understands that part of the job. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, Cavendish, Cavendish should have been punished for that and he should be punished again and he should continue to be punished until he stops doing that. And uh, he won't if they encourage him. But I actually, I mean, yeah, well, then there's the Dimension Data sponsorship issue. That yeah. that, that oh, couldn't yeah. possibly have anything to do with the fact that Dimension Data puts a lot of money into the tour. And I'm sure they didn't make a phone call and suggest that, you know, to the uh, promoters of the tour that, um, you know, Sagan was at fault and oh. Cavendish was not at fault and so on and so forth. <laughs> we know that didn't happen. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, how yeah. about, how about terms of, it would uh, be unprecedented. Let's put oh, it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Happy opposite day, everybody. Um, exactly. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> Now, what? How about uh, uh, things such as as tactics that were going on? I don't know about you, but um, the the yesterday's stage in seeing Astana chasing down that 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 fu- those final parts of the stage was incredibly confusing to me. Um, seeing what Sky is doing, I think I think Sky's tactics are contributing to the boring nature of the race. Hold up! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Well, I, you know, I'm not watching the video. I'm just looking at the, yeah. I, I like to get put on, you know, one of the cycling news or whatever and okay. watch their postings for the last hour or so. Okay. Um, Cause I'm too cheap to pay for TV coverage. And I'm too lazy to find it for free because it's just not that interesting. I mean, the Giro is a way funner tour to watch. Yeah. Um, always, but yeah, I mean, Sky's tactics are minimize your losses, minimize your losses, minimize your losses, you know, and that yeah. kind of stuff. And, and they, you know, and I mean, so far, I mean, Aru made that one breakaway that yeah. stayed and that was the only interesting day. And forget all the other, the late stuff about, when sky changed their bike and stuff that's bullshit like i was saying the other day if, yeah. if the peloton waited every time sky broke a bike or broke apart they, the race would never finish um wow it, you know there's just there's it's not it's not that interesting of a race um cr- you know okay they, go ahead oh uh, i was gonna say they, they kept out some interesting teams and you know put in some french wildcard teams that who, uh, you know, guys aren't even finishing the time limit and so on. And, yeah. you know, they've con- concocted this meal and now they're going to have to live with it. How, what is, and especially you can relate, you were in these big races and, and things like that. What is with bodies flying all over the road on such a consistent basis? Was, was, were there that many crashes when you were racing as a pro? So I used to, there were crashes, but typically I never saw anybody break anything more than a collarbone or a wrist or okay. a finger or something like that. Yeah. So um, I remember I was actually speculating with Jim Okowitz and a bunch of people back in the, the Lance Day. We were over here having having a party once and uh, back when we all thought Lance was great. And uh, <laughs> we were speculating because the crashes kind of started with a lot of these new bikes. And I think it's a, a number of factors. And one, um, I think that the bikes are – all stock bikes pretty much you're not getting custom bikes anymore if you're a pro bike racer you have to get a stock bike and then you play with your seat posts and your stem and all that stuff because they just crank this stuff out of factories in china for the most part um and so you don't have a bike that really fits you you don't grow up learning how to ride a bike well on a bike that really fits you um the bikes are way too stiff i I saw a quote from the guy a guy from cannondale a designer recently that he made about six months ago or a year ago and he goes yeah i finally basically to paraphrase it he says i finally figured out that that building a bike as stiff as you can possibly build it is probably not the best thing to do like duh Uh, you know bicycle is a bunch of parts and all the parts add to the suspension so now you've got bikes that don't fit people you've got bikes that are too stiff and you've got by and you've got now wheels these carbon fiber wheels that are coming along and they're fast everything's fast equipment's faster um but the positions are are bad um we had toe clips and you didn't eject eject from the bike and when you eject from any motorcyclist knows when you eject from the motorcycle at high speed you're going to kill yourself or hurt yourself you try to hold on to it and i think the 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 clip end pedals tend to eject people from bikes um and that might contribute to it i don't know i mean i wouldn't give up my clipping pedals no but to save the world but um you know it's um i think that's a contributing factor and i think that um, well, Europeans have always been terrible descenders. They've always been awful. I mean, they, they, I only met a couple of guys in my career that could go down hills as fast as anybody from Northern California <laughs> because they just don't emphasize going downhill as, as an important thing. They, they would rather not risk it. Um, it's just a different perspective. Still. So, yeah, you throw these guys on bikes. The bikes don't fit them. The bikes have never fit them. The bikes are too bouncy. Um, the roads are getting faster. Um, and now with these granny gears they're putting on the bikes, uh, the Tour de France, that opens up to the Tour of the Giro, these places, climbs that never could have been climbed back when I was racing. I mean, we, you know, we rode up, you know, 41, 23 or 24 yeah. was about it, right? I mean, some of these climbs are going up and down are new places that they've discovered because they have these, you know, the much smaller gears. So they can actually climb them and, and, you know, not be, you know, destroying their knees. Yeah. And, um, so that, and so as you get into these places, you get into more narrow roads and stuff. And so I, I think it's a whole combination of factors. I think the bike contributes a lot to it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've had people approach me with, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I ride a steel bike. I like my steel bikes. I've ridden some carbon fiber bikes and I've had people offer me carbon fiber bikes from major manufacturers. And I say, well, you know, I'll ride it, but if I don't like it, if I like it, I'm going to tell everybody. If I don't like it, I'm going to tell everybody. So yeah. maybe you shouldn't give me one. <laughs> so far, nobody <laughs> will give me one. <laughs> I guess that says something. Well, and and I, I 
throughout this tour, I've, uh, the issue of rider safety has come up quite a bit. You're saying, you know, they're going up these climbs they've never been, and then they got to get back down. And and some of these descents, at least, uh, look to me absolutely horrific. And the 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 I don't know if it's an organizer flaw. You know, heck, maybe a couple hay bales in the time trial would have had Valverde still in the race today. But um, but I, I don't know if rider issue, uh, rider safety has been an issue that has been vastly ignored. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, no one cares what the riders think, and the riders' union is, you know, they're they're lucky if they're allowed to speak, and then when they speak, nobody listens to them. So so that's yeah, rider safety is, if, you know, if you look at a list of you know hundred different things they care about, that's not high on the list. Yeah. Um, so um, you know, spectacolo is is the word. But I also you know from what I've seen. It's a lot more crashes in Tour de France, and people. Maybe there's not more crashes, but there seem to be a lot more people hurting themselves. And then, the, the, you know, a lot of the broken bones have to do with the um, certain substances that they think that are known to scavenge the bone marrow. And so we all know that they've got really uh, uh, brittle bones. Some people speculate that's because of the the diets where they try to get ultra, ultra, ultra skinny. That may be hurting the bones too. But whatever it is, there's there's something. I mean, I never heard of anybody breaking a femur. Or, uh, you know, we got, you know, yesterday, what, a broken hip, yeah. you know, a bunch, bunch of major bones breaking or cracking. That didn't used to happen. Cyclists, you know, we, we bounced back pretty good. And, uh, and then, you know, they're racing three months later, which I, I find doubly fascinating. So there's, there's some, yeah. something going on with diet or things they ingest. It was, it was saying Richie Port was going to be off for six weeks. Was it? Yeah. And uh, yeah. What? What? A broken hip? It must be just a. It's a cry. It was a crack. It turns yeah, out. Crack, I, okay. I mean, the press first reported it as a, as broken, and then it turned out it was a crack. But still, you know, that's how do you break your hip? You know, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. I'm old now. So if I fell down like that, I'd probably break my hip. But <laughs> at 25, you shouldn't be breaking your hip on a, on a bike crash. Um, so so I'm just kind of you know speculating here on what you might be uh, insinuating at. Um, your thoughts on the cleanliness of the of pro cycling right now? Well, Vauders told us it's clean, so it must be, right? Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. He's my favorite, you know, lead lead on that subject because we know how clean he was. Yeah, exactly. And all his writers have been, you know, what? You know, I mean, it's all, everything's speculation unless you can prove it. Yeah. Or you know, and if you know, you don't talk about it. Will it ever be clean in your opinion? No, and cycling is nowhere near as bad as track and field or cross-country skiing or even, for God's sake, you know, in the Olympics – they, they bust guys in, in marksmanship shooting guns yeah. or taking drugs, right? And, you know, cross-country skiing, those guys are the leaders in this stuff and, and mark, track and field for years. You know, I mean, the whole Flojo died at 39 from, quote, massive coronary failure, unquote. Yeah. Well, yeah. massive coronary failure was, you know, the code word for, you know, took too many steroids. And then the dying in your sleep, you know, we still see – we're still seeing kids in Europe – and it places having heart attacks and you know they're 17 or 18 or 19 years old it's not genetic yeah so yeah and you know it's wada wada wada's trying to help the national governing bodies i mean if, if you look at how are sports governed you have a national governing body who answers to the international governing body who answers yeah. to the international sports governing bodies and olympic committees who answer to no one they're, they're non-governmental organizations which report ultimately to no one, and all the members that are in positions of power are all making a lot of money, yeah. and they all have their fingers in a lot of different pies. So there is a possibility that some of these people, you know, get excited and, and bend the rules a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, cycling's doing better, I think, and it's trying, but I mean – you know, all, all the drug abuse has moved. Most of it has moved into the masters racing. And, yeah. but yeah, the, the, the pro teams are used to, um, experiment with stuff. I mean, in Belgium, they used to say, you know, don't waste money using, you know, testing out drugs on horses cause they cost more than bike racers. You know, first we test on the bike racers and then we'll give it to the horses. <laughs> God, no. Oh yes. shit. Okay. Um, so and and then I remember seeing a, a a quote from an article in an interview you were in, you know, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily the case, but if 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 that's the case, if we're never going to be able to get to this point because there are people involved who will continue to allow it, do we have to completely clean house, wipe everybody out, and what's to say? The next group in charge isn't going to say, "Wow, you know, I I really would like a new condo in on the lake and." 
all I have to yeah, do is well, look the other way. You're, you're going you're gonna to have to clean house. But the problem is you need to clean house starting with those little International Olympic Committee people. Yeah. Right. And and but but I mean, you could it just you could do something regionally in North America very easily. You could clean. There's there's it's really only a couple steps that you have to take. Um, one is you've you got to clean house and rehire the people who who are honest and, and clean. Yeah. And um, you have to separate the money from those guys. And not pay them such huge salaries. They ha- you have to find people who love the sport, and then you have to charge. The other thing would be to charge a ten dollars surcharge on every single person who every who enters every single race, and that money goes directly to WADA. And WADA handles the testing, and WADA handles the sanctions, or the the US ADA. Yeah. The the anti doping associations have to handle the sanctions. The problem here, just like every other country, is a lot of people get caught. And then the, it goes to the federation. It's all secret until, you know, and people, I personally know a couple people said, yeah, I got caught three times before they told me, you know, cut it out. You're not on the team anymore. Really? And, and none of this stuff came to the surface. And I, and then, you know, that was 15, 20 years ago, but I'm sure it's still taking place. And, um, because, you know, they don't want the sport to look bad. So, you know, the, the, I mean, there's guys racing on the national team that have been busted a couple times, you know, and claim they were, you know, is in their supplements, blah, 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 bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. And the, and then the other thing they have to do is they have to be serious about these sanctions. I mean, when you're a master's racer and you get busted and you have to take a year or two off of racing and go do some other sport, and then they just come back and they keep doing the drugs and the possibility of getting caught. I mean, if they, God forbid, they test master's races, the top three in almost every race would be caught positive. Especially the big races, yeah. um, you know. So if you had to pay, if you had to sign something every time you entered a race, said, "I agree to abide by these rules, and I'm donating ten dollars here to WADA, and if I get caught, I'm not going to do any more competitive sports for the rest of my life." I think you clean the sport up pretty fast because you you get well. First of all, you you clean up the demand, right? There's a huge demand for things like EPO. Yeah. Okay. And 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 who where are they making the money off of? Okay, where does the company that make the EPO or the EPO-like substance, where do they make their money? Right? There's when when you when a company produces three times as much EPO every year as could possibly be consumed worldwide by anyone who could possibly legitimately benefit from the EPO. Okay, so let's even just say it's only three times as much as you could possibly consume. And obviously, yeah. there's a lot of people who could benefit from EPO that don't get it because they're in whatever country that doesn't have it or they can't afford it or whatever. So now you've got at least, you know, 66% more that's going somewhere. It's not getting flushed down toilets except through people's urine. <laughs> and where is it going? It's going to the masters races that are willing to pay a lot of money. And there's all kinds of, you know, you go to you go to any gym and if you have any talent, you know, these 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 gym places, you find some trainer guy and he's got a friend who's a doctor and he can get you whatever you want. I don't know how many guys came up to me when I started racing and they, oh, you know, guys didn't even know me, but they knew I was, you know, I'd made the Olympic team or I was going to make the Olympic team. I can get you any steroids you want, blah, 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 blah. You know, there's all kinds of sources for this stuff. And now with the Internet, it's even even more so. And, you know, and that's a huge source of income for these companies. They're not motivated to get rid of it. And how? what's their marketing? Their marketing <laughs> is that all the pros use it. Yeah. See, now this... Wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah. As as a master's racer myself, that just sounds so fucking petty. It, it's sad. That, that that is something that is on your agenda to, you know, what are you doing? You're going home with a, you know, a, a ribbon and a gift certificate to a bike shop and, and you're doing this to yourself and you're putting all this out there it's just it's it's sad and pathetic is what it is it is i mean as a pro as a pro let's say a guy who's got the option of okay if i don't microdose i'm off the team and then i got to go home and work at walmart um well it's not really that what it is 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 you're 20 years old you grew up in a family where uncle so-and-so you know was a pro bike racer for a couple of years and so it's it's a big thing it's a big fucking yeah, deal yeah. and you go in there and the guys who are the soigneurs and the guys who are the managers are all big name guys and 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 they're very respectable and europeans are very respectful people compared to americans right in general <laughs> um they tend to be a little more polite a little more respectful and you're thrust into this environment where you know, now you're racing with guys who are your heroes. You've got the guys who can provide you with this stuff through your heroes, and they're taking you aside and going, "No, it's okay. Don't worry. You know, this is we're just it's just a little bit, you know, and and it's a big race, and you want to do well for your mom or whatever." Oh, and you know, your uncle so and so wouldn't have been like this. <laughs> and they're young and they're impressionable. They're you know they're 
20, 20, they, they start younger. And it's, you know, I, I can't really blame them, you know, a young rider coming into a situation like that where you're thrust into a room full of, you know, guys you've been looking up to all your life and, and they're saying it's okay. And what do you know? You know, you don't even have a high school education. You just raced your bike and barely got out of, you know, yeah. fifth grade or something like that. I can't blame the riders. What you need to do is you need to punish all of the soigneurs. I mean, teams need to be thrown out and shut down and, and penalized. I mean, they need to come up with something that penalizes the whole team in a way that the rider says, I don't want to let my team down and get caught using this stuff. I mean, they're starting to do a little bit of that, but it's nowhere near enough. Um, and what? No, I don't. I don't necessarily want to. I always find my conversations tend to lead towards this doping element, and because it is such a stigma that has been placed upon yeah. the sport, and and that the hypocrisy of that stigma being that you know you're talking about track and field, you're talking about. I mean, don't get me started on fucking football. You know what those guys are probably <laughs> yeah. doing. Um, but you know, and how is that going to make us any better? But um, from from your years and from what you've seen um, involved in the sport and the riders you were able to compete against and with, um, I I don't I don't know if this is an intelligent question or not, but I've always wondered if if the playing field were even, what would the riders from you know the, the yourself uh, Bernardi No Francesco Moser even Greg Lamond and things like that, how would that equate in today's society in terms of if if, if the leveling, if the playing field was level. Still there? Yep. Just yeah. got a little okay. feedback. Yeah, we're getting a little uh, choppy. Um, that's a. I think it's a fool's errand to try to do that speculation. Yeah. I mean, it's the you know who is greater, Merckx or Kopi thing that the Italians revisit yeah. every year. And and I don't think you can you know, I mean, it was different. They did steroids and they did yeah. speed and a few things like that back in that back when I was racing. Um, now it's much bigger programs a lot more different stuff and you add in those medical complexities and you're you know you're just looking to kill yourself later in life um i don't think it's worth trying to speculate that you know I, the, the thing that makes me sad is just is seeing these old guys take all this stuff and then you know you hear about you know you know with the new era you know i mean you know the you know lance starting to steroids at the age of 12 what? Is, is is a reliable source of information that i have um so not not an unknown thing. I mean, you know, they start the kids young and, and it, you know, turns them into, you know, his case, it turned him a raging maniac. Yeah. And, um, and one who, who, despite what some people say, really didn't have the physical or mental talent, probably had the mental talent, but certainly not the physical talent based on his statistics to, to do all that well against, you know, the top racers yeah. of any era. In your but opinion, the, in your opinion, should the 1999 to 2005 tours have a winner in the record books? No, I don't think so. But I, really? I, you know, I mean, the thing is, you can't you can't erase history. You need to somehow explain what happened and why it's bad. And I mean, so you know, I'm I'm on the board of directors of Cycling Hall of Fame, and we have had an ethics committee that's been meeting for many many years, and we've actually thrown a couple of people out of the Hall of Fame now because of, uh, you know. Admitting, basically admitting that certain things are getting caught for certain things, really obvious. And, uh, you know, one of the arguments there is do we erase them from the record books? Uh, and I think the better argument is that no, you don't erase, you might erase their record, but you still need to document what happened and, and why it happened and, and, you know, talk about that era. You don't, you don't want to just completely erase it. And so I think. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what to do at this point. They can't take the money back. They can't take their jerseys back. They're they're not willing to do anything like that. So, um, you know, they just they just need to have plenty of asterisks in the record book. Yeah. I guess. Get, yeah, that key's going to wear out soon. Yeah. On the yeah. keyboard there. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a dilemma with the Hall of Fame. We have a whole era where we can't. There are a number of people, and and one of the things we added in was you have to sign a piece of paper that says I never did any of this bad shit. And, and, uh, I, you know, we're going to be coming up on people. Now we're getting into the era where people are being submitted to be put on the ballot and they're, you know, it's like, uh, you know, thanks for the submission. Yeah. See you later. And, and then, you know, it has to go through a committee and a bunch of other stuff. So, um, you know, we just don't put them on if they're, if they're obviously, you know, busted. And then there's still a number of names that have to be cleaned out of there, but it's hard because you don't have, you know, everybody knows, but you have no evidence. One of those yeah. things. Yeah. And oh. that's a dilemma. How do you deal with that? Shit. Oh man. Um, 
well, I'm, I'm getting towards the end of my time here, but, um, and kind of in terms of back to the tour, here we are on a rest day tomorrow, yeah. all the race starts back up. Um, in your opinion, barring any crashes is, is the tour over? You know, there's always a possibility. There's a couple of days in there that look pretty good. Yeah. But they seem to be well suited for the current tactics that Sky and other people use. They're not, they're not suited to blow things away. Um, I mean, I, if, if, if they get to the end of a stage like they did yesterday with all those climbs yeah. and they're still, you still have, you know, those who haven't fallen down and broken their bones, you still basically have all the top GC contenders together on the last climb. That's kind of, something's wrong. Something's wrong with the riders, something's wrong with the course, something's wrong with the tactics, all that stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, to Sky's credit, they're doing what it takes to win and that's, that's what you do. Yeah. And uh, people will always, you know, if a guy doesn't win some stages in the tour, but he wins overall, there's always, for years, there's always been those, well, you know, he didn't blah, 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 blah. Well, you know what? No, that's, you know, that if you do what it takes to win the race, but not many other people seem to be animating it. Everybody's um, kind of all at the same level or something or, un- or afraid to do something. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I've been seeing and hearing so much about uh, Quintana over the years, but I have yet to see him attack in a tour. Right, right. And every year it's the same thing. Yeah, he's going to be the, you know, whatever. He's going to unleash his whatever, and then he yeah. just kind of sits on the wheels, and he's almost there. Yeah, are they all just going and, that high? Are they all that equal of a level that nobody else has that little extra ability to punch and attack, you know? Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't I don't know. I'd, I'd have to get in. I'd yeah. have to think about it a lot more oh, yeah. and care about it a lot more. <laughs> I mean, the, Ita- the Italian, you know, race seems to be pretty animated. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Things change up there and, and I think part of that is that they Italians develop the course in such a way that it's it's not it's not known who's gonna win until four or five days before the race is over. I miss that. And that's not the case in the tour. No. And, and it's th- this is not this is not new. I mean, you know, An- Ancatil took the Giro took took the yellow jersey one year and held it for the whole race. I mean it's Yeah. I just I, I hate to sound like a negative guy, but whenever I this first rest day comes or these, that first major mountain stage, and something like that happens, and you and you just go, well, that's it. Now what the hell am I going to do for the next two and a half weeks? Well, I you know, there's always the possibility for an epic day with a few epic riders, and yeah. the, the, we always hold out for that. And I I hope that happens in the tour this year because I I would want to get excited about it, but getting excited because of crashes and people getting thrown out of the race and, and, you know, the five GC leaders coming in together at the finish, that's not, none of that is worth getting excited about. I want to see some bike racing. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, uh, George, I, this might sound really cheesy and cliche, but, um, thank you first of all for believing in yourself in this, in the late seventies and early eighties and, and making something, um, you know, I'm not going to say like, Oh, if it wasn't for you, none of us would be here, but dude, if it's kind of like that. So, um, thanks for going over there and, and having the balls to do something like that. Hey, I used to say the only dope I saw was when I looked in the mirror. <laughs> Well, and it sounds like that was what brought you back. You're probably getting to the point where you're like, going, oh, shit, I don't want to do this stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I got chased down the hall by the swan year, you know, with a towel wrapped around me as he's yelling, don't worry, it'll never show up. It's okay. <laughs> and I knew what it was. So, it was yeah. like, no. Oh, shit. Well, um, if, thanks, thanks so much for your time. Yeah. I loved, I loved being able to have you on and, and get to understand, like I said, that perspective. And and for somebody who's been involved with the sport for a long time, you really have have something that can be brought to the table. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, good. I'm I'm happy to uh, tell you my opinion. You know, I'm never never short of opinions. <laughs> I'm I'm quite full of them. I and love other things. As I stated, good guy, good opinions, funny guy, George Mount. Pack Filler podcast. What a great talk that was with him. Tour continues tomorrow, you guys. Keep your fingers crossed that maybe we'll get some some excitement out of this. Maybe, uh, you know, I guess the good thing was seeing Froome a little isolated. I don't know if you're a... I, 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 I'm okay with Chris Froome winning the Tour de France for his fourth time. I just would like some fireworks going into it. That's all I ask. That's all I ask. Keep the feedback coming, you guys, on the show. Um, you guys have been... 
downloading, reviewing, sending me comments like crazy. And um, some of you agree and some of you think I'm full of shit. And that's completely fine with me. Keep it coming. Pac- Patrick at packfiller.com is the email if you want to go old school, even though I can't believe that's old school anymore. Great. If you want to do the Facebook, the Facebooks, old people always put a the in front of whatever uh, thing they're talking about when it comes to technology. If you want to talk to me on the Facebook or the Twitter, um, I'm not on the Snapchat because I'm over the age of 30. And if you're on the Snapchat and you're over the age of 30, you're creepy. We will talk to you guys tomorrow when the race continues. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 